Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A plan to reopen South Bay's Sweetwater High School District. So the plan allows for 10% of students at each school to come back for in-person learning. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heidman is out today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The race is on to replace Shirley Weber in San Diego's 79th Assembly District. Every state position is important in itself, but I do think that Weber was an especially important figure in the legislature. San Diego's urban Native American community works to counter vaccine hesitancy, and mariachi music brings comfort and hope through the pandemic. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Middle and high school districts in San Diego's north and south counties are eager to get plans approved for reopening. But on Sunday, state officials put the brakes on the reopening requests of several north county districts. Meanwhile, the Sweetwater Union High School District has approved a deal with teachers' unions for a limited reopening. But all of the reopening plans now remain contingent on San Diego moving from the most restrictive purple COVID tier to the red. Joining me is KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. The Sweetwater Union District held its vote on the reopening plan last night. What are the main elements of that plan? Yeah, so the plan allows for 10% of students at each school to come back for in-person learning. Now, um, Sweetwater's reopening plan is a bit of a baby step compared to other districts in San Diego County because the zip codes in the Sweetwater School District have had such high case numbers throughout the pandemic. For instance, this is a a much more modest proposal than what San Diego Unified has put out. The district is hoping to bring back all of its students on April 12th. Now, Sweetwater is focusing on prioritizing high-need students, which is essentially where other districts were at the beginning of 2021. Uh, I spoke with Sweetwater Teachers Union President Julie Walker yesterday. Here's what she said about who qualifies to come back to the classroom. 
children who are special ed, children who are from low-income homes, and students who are language learners. Those are our big threes, and they will get first availability for any open slots that are there. We will offer it to all of them. Now, Joe, you mentioned those zip codes. This deal calls for not just the county to qualify for red tier status, but for the zip codes in the Sweetwater District to also have COVID positivity rates that fall from purple to red. Is that likely to happen anytime soon? I think so. You know, these zip codes were seeing case rates that were double or triple the county averages just a few months ago. And now with vaccinations underway, the case rates in these neighborhoods are, are still higher than the county average, but definitely not as much. And with the county progressing towards the red tier now, I think these South Bay zip codes should be close behind. What about elementary schools in the South Bay? Is there a plan to reopen those grades? Yeah, so Chula Vista Elementary School District is the the big one, um, and it announced last week that it's currently preparing to start some form of in-person instruction. You know, they haven't released many details yet, but we know that it won't happen before April 5th. Okay, so moving to the North County, a group of North County middle and high school districts, they got a thumbs down from state officials on their reopening plans. What were they proposing? Right. So San Diego Union High, Poway Unified, and Carlsbad Unified were three districts that were hoping to use a sort of state exemption process to reopen their middle and high schools while the county is still in the purple tier. So in the case of Poway Unified, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, the district made the argument to the state that the district qualified to reopen middle and high schools for part-time in-person instruction because the district had already been taking steps towards reopening before the state changed its guidelines back in January. And Poway was planning on starting uh, opening middle and high schools on March 16th, which is next week. But San Diego Union High School District, they were in more of a sort of dire situation because they got the denial letter on Sunday evening, and they were actually planning on reopening middle and high schools uh, yesterday on Monday. So they really had to scramble, and um, there were a lot of upset folks up there. The North County reopening plans apparently got the okay from San Diego County's Dr. Wilma Wooten. So was it a surprise when those plans were denied? Yeah, I think it was. You know, I I spoke with Poway uh, Superintendent Marianne Kim Phelps yesterday, and she said all of the districts submitted very detailed plans for reopening, but they all got the same generic denial letter. And she said she was disappointed because each of the districts submitted plans that were thoughtful and sort of tailored to their own district. But the state didn't seem to put the same amount of thought into its response. And here's what uh, Kim Phelps said yesterday. It feels like that the state has no interest in reopening all schools, rather just elementary schools. We have our elementary schools open, but how do we, the question is how do we reopen all of our secondary schools and get our secondary kids back into our schools? Why were these North County districts so certain that they were going to get the green light on this special state exemption? Yeah, I think uh, really the surprise came from the fact that the districts really uh, did things by the book. You know, they got multiple county officials to sort of support their proposals to reopen uh, folks like you mentioned, uh, Dr. Wilma Wooten. And then they had all the safety guidelines in place, you know, all the social distancing measures, the smaller class sizes, the, the ventilation in the classrooms. And so now to these administrators, it just seems like the state is contradicting itself by denying their, their proposal to reopen. 
And what were the state's reasons for keeping those higher grades closed? So the state isn't allowing middle and high schools to reopen unless students who go on campus spend the entire day with the same group of 15 students and the same teacher. And anyone who's been to a traditional high school knows that there's never any two students who have all the same classes together, right? So from a scheduling perspective, it becomes impossible to meet that state criteria for reopening. So all the districts are waiting for San Diego to enter the red tier. And that looks like it could take a, a couple more weeks, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, but district administrators are, are hopeful that this is truly the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, um, like I mentioned, San Diego Unified, which is the state's second largest district, came out with a pretty firm date of April 12th. And I think we should see that as a positive sign for all the students and parents who've been waiting so long to get back to school. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. And Joe, thanks. Thanks for having me. The debate over reopening schools is heating up here in California. Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a bill that offers over $6 billion to help get schools back to in-person instruction. But the issue of returning to in-person instruction is polarizing parents, teachers, and communities. They're having emotional issues. My kindergartner now is refusing to do the work and just flipping the lid of her tablet down. And my fourth grader is has been diagnosed during this time with clinical depression and has had suicide ideation as well. I've never met my teacher in person, so I really want to meet my teacher. And there's some new kids in my class who I haven't met, so I want to meet them too. I'm a special education teacher. I'm also a parent. And, and you see the comments and the vitriol and just the what's being thrown at us about how we teachers are just, you know, sitting on our laurels, collecting our huge paychecks. I don't know what world these folks are living in. I definitely didn't get into teaching for the big, the big bucks. I think ultimately the result will be many people will move away or enroll in, pu- in private schools or charter schools, and that will further hurt a district that is hurting already. I've known too many people to have coronavirus to feel comfortable going back. The people pushing to return to in-person are typically more privileged. If you got COVID, would you be going to a hospital where you have full health insurance? Do you have a guest room where you can quarantine? Would you be putting your grandmother or your mother or your, you know, who else would you be putting at risk? Uh, My father's a longshoreman and their motto is an injury to one is an injury to all. And so I feel like that is the motto we need to have with COVID. Like if we are risking one grandmother dying, one teacher dying, one custodian dying, one student dying, then it's not worth it. That last voice you heard is Whitney Dwyer. She's a teacher in Oakland, and she's worried about teenagers at her high school spreading the virus. While she's cautious about reopening, she's also aware that distance learning is taking a toll on students and parents. It's also taking a toll on teachers like her, especially those with their own kids at home. KQED's Vanessa Roncano asked Dwyer to keep an audio diary for a day, documenting her every move. So I just woke up. I set my alarm for 6. I usually wake up at 6.30, but... Whitney Dwyer teaches 10th grade at MetWest High School in Oakland. She's got to be ready for class in two and a half hours. But right now, she's got other things on her mind. 
trying to debate if I should go to the grocery store right now. We can't go grocery shopping with the kids, so it's less stressful if I go while they're sleeping and then my husband doesn't have to worry about watching them while I go. And she's already hearing from her students. I also got a text from my student saying that his power is going on and off last night when I was asleep, so he may not make it to class today and he may not be the only one. And I'm also eating pizza because that was the only breakfast we had that I could take and go. She decides to make that dash to the store. Breakfast is a slice of leftover pizza on the way. Driving home, she runs through a list of the things she needs to get done before her class starts at 9 a.m. Wake up the kids, get them dressed, cereal, make sure the two-year-old uses the potty. Whitney has three kids, Brendan, nine, Grayson, seven, and Maxwell, two. I really hope that I can keep my patience. (laughs) I've really been impressed with the amount of patience I've been able to have. (laughs) Brendan and Grayson need to be on their computers to start school now. Her husband, Anthony, gives Maxwell blocks and puzzles while she settles into the guest room that's become her office. It's 8.30. So here's my, my setup. Distance learning really requires two screens. Um, I'm going to start class now. All right, so our agenda for today, we are going to review and recap with a lightning round. 17 of her 21 humanities students show up. All of them have their cameras off. I also want to remind you that your participation credit goes up if your camera is on. I'm feeling a little lonely, although sometimes I get tired of sounding desperate. Please, I just feel so alone. Can someone just turn their camera on? It doesn't even have to be on your face. It could be at a window. Whitney's had to adjust to the silence, too. Any questions about that? I feel like I was just talking a lot. Answers almost always come over Zoom chat. And sometimes only Whitney can see them. It's like listening to half a conversation. Thank you, Leilani. Oh, I don't know about all that. What might have been classroom chatter is now a series of chat exchanges and text shorthand. LOL, LMAO, OMG, TY, YW, question mark. Sometimes Whitney can tell her students aren't actually at their computers. Yerma, I need a little bit more from you. As she teaches about the Aztecs and the Mayans using a new digital tool, she's got a troubleshoot on the side. And so I'm like trying to teach and then I'm like, (laughs) it's like private chat, chat, text. It's... It's a lot to navigate. There's one moment when the topic of slave labor among the Mayans comes up where there's something almost like a normal class discussion. Imagine being dependent on slave labor. One could argue our society is dependent on slave labor. I mean, there are like very low wages. That can't Um, be compared to slave labor. The limitations are still painfully clear. It's hard to hear. They can't see each other. Teaching over Zoom basically takes away almost everything that I enjoy about teaching. Now I'm, it's just, you know, nightmares of black boxes. Bye, y'all. Bye. There are still moments of connection. After class, 16-year-old Memo Martinez stays on to get advice. He even turns his camera on. At this school, all students are expected to take on internships. Memo's having a hard time picking one. Let's just say I have one interest and I'm like, oh, why do I do this? After that, another interest happens. What if I go into cooking? Then I'm like, yo, bro, I don't want to. And then later I thought, yo, what if I work in automotives? 
just a bunch of what ifs. I don't know. I just and can't that's great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Like never change. It sucks to just have one interest. This is what Whitney misses most about teaching. I love how their minds work. Whitney has two minutes to run to the bathroom before her teacher planning meeting starts at 10.30. And then I check their work, and it turns out that they weren't reading. It's a chance to get crucial professional and emotional support. I only had two brave souls today that were down to read out loud. It's harder than in school. It's surprising. It's the closest thing Whitney has to the staff room these days. It was like pulling teeth. We were quiet for like a good maybe 30 seconds. It has spread. It's almost noon now, and time to take over parenting so her husband can go back to work. That means lunch and homework and bathroom time for Maxwell. It's time to go to the party. Red light. Red light. Right now I have 26 text messages, messages on 11 different Slack channels talking about some of my students that are absent for class. Most days, most of Whitney's students show up. Some are doing well. Their grades and reading levels have gone up. Then there are the ones who were taking care of siblings, the ones who don't have stable housing. She's lost track of one student altogether. And then there's her own son's academic progress. You got this. You do this every day. You've been doing I don't do this every day. Such a good job. I read it with my teacher usually. No, that's just... This is the hardest moment in Whitney's day, the hardest part of distance learning, knowing some students need more than she can give, that her own kids may too. Stop pretending to stab yourself in the neck with a pencil. (laughs) Not funny. Not funny at all. Are you guys going to be okay for now? My meeting is happening now. Okay. After helping Brendan and Grayson with their homework, Whitney puts Maxwell down for a nap, then pleads with her older boys to keep quiet so she can meet with her school leaders over Zoom. She's presenting a proposal for teachers to get more training on how to support students and parents who are dealing with trauma. I've had so many instances just this year. There's like death is always around us. As hard as it's been to adapt to this new way of teaching, it's the world students face outside the classroom that she hasn't been able to troubleshoot her way out of. They have a stronger relationship with me than with anyone else, so it's difficult for anyone else to provide that support. She struggles to name the solution. More financial resources to point families to? Better mental health services? She's compelled to take these questions on with her colleagues, even though it's just one more thing. But Hi. Yes, I know. Help me open At the end of the day, after dinner, after putting the kids to bed, Whitney sits down to send work emails. I had intentions to do work that night, and I fell asleep at my computer. One more thing pushed to Sunday night, when she's regularly up until 3 a.m. catching up on the week's work. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Oakland. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. 
So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. When Governor Gavin Newsom delivers his State of the State speech from Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles tonight, the campaign to recall him from office will be the backdrop. And KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer says whether or not the recall ultimately succeeds, the California Republican Party is hoping to benefit from it. This past weekend in Vacaville, a half hour southwest of Sacramento, a couple dozen volunteers gathered with recall Newsom signs, waving American flags as passing cars honked in support. Sign and then put your full address is how you register to vote. Michelle Guerra is chair of the Solano County Republican Party. She's here corralling people to sign recall petitions and making sure their voter information is up to date. How long has it been since you've updated your registration, your signature? Have you updated your information? Do you need to change your information? Among those who stopped to sign a petition was David Verza, a 32-year-old Republican who says for him, the recall is personal. My friend group, family group, um, we're having a hard time here and it just feels like Newsom isn't helping us out at all. It feels like he doesn't care. You know, when we see him eating in restaurants and doing stuff like that, it, it really uh, shows where his loyalties lie, you know. A week from tomorrow is the deadline for signatures, and recall organizers say they've got more than enough. Jessica Milan-Patterson is chair of the California Republican Party. She says while the recall didn't start out as a purely Republican effort, they're all in now. We saw that there was a movement there, and we joined on to it because it's the right thing to do for Californians. And for the Republican Party. Patterson says the recall is a chance to showcase the GOP as an alternative to Democratic policies voters don't like, from the pandemic to the death penalty. It's also a way to engage volunteers in what was supposed to be a relatively quiet year as far as politics goes. We've done about a million phone calls chasing the um, signature uh, petitions from individuals who should have received it and getting those back in. So keeping the volunteers engaged in a quote-unquote off year um, is phenomenal. The Republican National Committee has kicked in $250,000 toward the recall effort, and it looks like money won't be a problem if the recall qualifies for the ballot. Randy Economy, yep, that's his real name, is the official spokesman for the recall campaign. He's a former Democrat turned independent turned Republican, and he insists the recall is nonpartisan. I know that the Republican Party structure has um, decided to get involved in the campaign. Of, of course they are. We couldn't stop them from doing that. Everybody has the right to get involved. But our campaign is not based upon um, you know, the wishes of the Republican Party or its Republican Party operatives. At the same time, economy acknowledges... Some of our greatest uh, volunteers are, you know, chairmans of the of individual county Republican parties up in Nevada County or El Dorado County or Alameda County. Political operative Ann Dunsmore is a consultant for the recall campaign. She says, if nothing else, the effort to get rid of Newsom puts Democrats on the defensive while giving the GOP an opportunity to reach voters who might not otherwise be receptive to their message. They're certainly using it as an organizing tool. 
Um, it's certainly catching fire. There's certainly a benefit to it. And you can see it because all the county parties are starting to surf that wave. Republican consultant Rob Stutzman, who worked on the 2003 recall of Governor Gray Davis, says this gives Republicans a chance to talk about how they would govern the state differently from Democrats. And as long as, you know, Trump-related candidates stay out of it, they're not talking about Donald Trump. So it's a very good opportunity uh, for the party to grow beyond its current base. Meanwhile, Governor Newsom is hoping that by the time the recall election happens later this year, the pandemic will be in the rearview mirror and that voters will be in no mood to replace him with a Republican. I'm Scott Schaefer. KPBS will broadcast Newsom's State of the State Address live tonight at 6. Early voting is now underway to pick the next assembly member for San Diego's 79th district. The district includes southeastern San Diego, Lemon Grove, La Mesa, and parts of Chula Vista and National City. Five candidates are running. They break down into four Democrats and one Republican, four women and one man, and four people of color and one white candidate. They are each trying to fill the shoes of a giant among San Diego politicians. Dr. Shirley Weber represented the 79th District until her appointment this year as California Secretary of State. Joining me is Voice of San Diego Managing Editor, Sarah Libby. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. Does the fact that one of these candidates will be replacing Shirley Weber make this an especially important race? I think that it does. Obviously, every state position is important in itself, but I do think that Weber was an especially important figure in the legislature for a few reasons. She was one of the few people who was really the most willing to challenge some very powerful groups in the state, including teachers unions and police unions, and really press those groups for accountability. And you know, each lawmaker has their own style, but she is definitely one who stands out as somebody who is unafraid to propose really big and ambitious laws and reforms. And so that makes her pretty unique as well. Well, the candidates in the 79th district are Democrats, Dr. Akila Weber, Labor Attorney Leticia Mungia, Teacher Shane Suzanne Parmalee, and Generation Justice founder Aramik Glass-Blake. The sole Republican in the race is business owner Marco Contreras. So, Sarah, let's start with the candidate with the largest name recognition, Dr. Akila Weber, Shirley Weber's daughter. What does she bring to the race? Yeah, so she has pretty direct experience in dealing with two of the biggest crises that are facing our communities right now, uh, one being COVID-19. You mentioned she's a medical doctor and also a lot of the racial justice issues as they relate to policing. She's been a member of the La Mesa City Council as that city dealt with, you know, rioting and a lot of anger over an incident uh, where a police officer targeted and arrested a black man. Um, and La Mesa is also in the midst of hiring a new police chief. And so she's been involved in that process. Now, Leticia Munguia is a labor attorney who's worked for the teachers union, and she also actually has some pretty impressive endorsements, doesn't she? She does. Um, you know, as you might imagine, as somebody who works for a labor group, she has a lot of labor groups across the state behind her, um, as well as the Legislative Latino Caucus. And so with that comes a lot of support. 
Is education that is getting kids back to school one of the big issues in this race? I think it absolutely is. It's certainly the biggest issue facing uh, both the governor and the legislature right now. And, you know, you have two candidates who have direct involvement and in schools and the teachers union. And so that really ramps things up. Uh, there's Shirley Weber's legacy of working on schools um, and education issues. And so when you combine all of that, I think, you know, it really is at the forefront for this race. Is there a difference among these candidates about whether or not kids should be getting back to school? Well, I think um, one interesting thing that came up during a debate that we held between the candidates was um, disagreement on whether various districts will be returning and in what form. Um, I think, you know, Shane Parmalee is a teacher and has support of a lot of individual teachers in this uh, race. She's gotten a lot of small donations from teachers across the county. Um, but she mentioned that she doesn't think, for example, San Diego Unified's reopening target date um, is much of a, a done deal or an official thing. And so I think nailing down the state's role in reopening schools is, you know, a, a continued issue that lawmakers will face. I'm not sure that I've heard a lot of individual distinctions between the candidates as far as how they might differ on doing that. What are some of the other big issues in this race? Well, we mentioned policing. Um, you know, Aramie Glass-Blake is a racial justice advocate, advocate, and I think um, has said she would take a strong uh, interest in those issues at the state level. But I think also just in general, um, helping local businesses and local economies recover from the pandemic will be at the forefront. Even though the state managed to have a good year economically, um, kind of unexpectedly, local cities are in a much different position and they're going to be dealing with budget issues for possibly years to come. And so I think helping local businesses and local economies navigate those challenges will um, definitely be something this next person deals with. And that's one of the issues that the Republican in the race, Marco Contreras, has been very vocal about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so he is a business owner and um, he's gotten a lot of support, not just from Republican groups, but individual um, business owners across the state, particularly uh, developers. A lot of prominent developers from San Diego have supported his candidacy, as well as people like insurance um, professionals and, and just a lot of prominent business leaders uh, across the state. How big a factor is the candidate's race in this election? I think it's become a pretty big issue, even if the candidates aren't necessarily um, talking about it directly. Shirley Weber was a key figure in racial justice conversations in the state, and she was one of the few Black women in the assembly. But the district itself has a large Latino population, about 33%. And Latinos are also underrepresented in the legislature compared to their population in the state. So, um, you know, it's interesting, two of the men who had considered running for this seat eventually decided to sit it out. And they said specifically that they thought the seat should go to a black woman. Um, and so the Legislative Black Caucus is behind Akila Weber and the Legislative Latino Caucus is behind um Leticia. And so it certainly has uh, shaped up to be something that's kind of 
underscoring all of the other issues we're discussing. And is there any candidate who is showing an advantage in donations, in fundraising, to be able to get out mailers and things of that nature? Yeah, so far, Akilah Weber has dominated um, the fundraising. I was checking just today, and there's an independent expenditure group that is spending a lot of money on her behalf um, for purchasing TV ads and things like that. And so, so far, you know, there's a short window. Uh, The initial voting day is coming up. Um, And so she certainly looks to have the biggest advantage as far as money so far. Okay, so early voting and mail-in voting continue until Election Day, April 6th, and there are enough candidates that we may not have a winner on that date. So (laughs) what happens then? So the top two vote-getters in that case would move on to a, a general election, a special election that would happen in early June. Okay, thank you. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego Managing Editor, Sarah Libby. Sarah, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Body, mind, spirit, an indivisible combination that is the cornerstone for holistic wellness for Native Americans. KPBS's Maya Trabalsi explains how the local urban Native American community has been uniquely affected by the pandemic. Reuben Leva pours kernels of dried corn from a small pouch. It's an offering to honor the land at the San Diego American Indian Health Center, turning in each direction for the four phases of life, from children to elders. Danso, that means hello uh, in the Apache language. I am a Chiricahua Chinde Apache. He's a member of the board of directors at this clinic in Bankers Hill. And I stand here honored and humble to speak to you on Kumeyaay land. Started in 1979, the clinic provides a hub of services for patients that are made up of 33% Native Americans. Leva says the clinic represents so much more than that for the urban indigenous community. The urban community uh, is different than the tribal community because many of us here in the urban areas may not be traditional to these lands. And so, We rely on places like San Diego American Indian Health Center to establish networks of support within the community. In order to understand how COVID-19 has impacted Native Americans, Leva offers some historical context. Dating back to 1519, when Hernan Cortez entered the Americas, he came across Montezuma and the Aztecs. And from that point forward, we've been battling diseases. He says Native Americans born into historical trauma want to acknowledge the harm committed against them, but can use the struggles of the past to turn into positive outcomes, including the fight against the latest pandemic. Ronnie Whitehorse is an RN here and a member of the Navajo Nation in Arizona, which has been hit hard by the pandemic. But we can't go back, you know, without endangering a lot of people. She shares real concerns of members on the reservations because of lack of supplies or medicine. So having this vaccine here and the ability to give it out is really, really huge for us. But even with the availability of the vaccine, Whitehorse faces resistance when calling on patients to come in for their shots. We don't have a good historical history with the government. So that's the basis of a lot of our mistrust. 
I can imagine how people would say, now wait a minute here. Health Center CEO Kevin LaChapelle says the organization is built around the patient, with Native Americans serving Native Americans, which helps build trust. Another beautiful day to be indigenous on Turtle Island. The clinic uses social media to engage and urban members with classes and cultural activities. A cloth. Um, type of moccasin is really easy. When it comes to vaccination hesitancy, La Chapelle says patience is paramount, but social media has helped on that front too. So one of the things we did to counter it, which was really amazing, is some of our board members um, that are elders, um, they said, you know what, when I get mine, I'm happy to do it on video and give a message and show that I'm doing this because I believe that we have to protect each other. That helped a lot. One of those elders is Randy Edmonds. I'm from the Kiowa and Kettle Nations of Oklahoma. Edmonds received both COVID-19 vaccinations, his visits documented and posted on Facebook to encourage the community to follow suit. So they could uh, understand that this elder would like to continue living and uh, wants to take the shot to make sure that that happens. A survivor of the residential program and later relocated to California by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. In history, we have been lied to. We have been disenfranchised. By that, we begin to lose traditions. We begin to lose our language, begin to lose our history. Losing history is something this tight-knit community faces again, this time as a side effect of the pandemic. Edmonds, a celebrated gourd dancer, sits beneath a colorful mural created of his image in traditional regalia. A reminder of the pre-pandemic days of singing, dancing, and socializing at powwows. And that's uh, how we stay together as Indian people. We don't have a community like the African Americans do, the Hispanics, the Asians. You know, they all have their little communities where they live. Indians don't have that. We, um, we're scattered all over San Diego. And while social media has helped to keep the community connected with traditions, the pandemic still impedes the conveying of important generational knowledge. Ruben Leva says some objects and ceremonies are too private or sacred to be photographed, filmed, or shared online. We don't have a tremendous documented, written explanation of our customs and culture. Those are delivered and have been uh, since time immemorial, verbally and in person. And like all challenges of the past, you know, I miss seeing him. that the urban it's native not, community not, has endured and overcome, it feel right. during this pandemic, it's the time spent apart that hurts the most. Maya Trabulsi, KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh.
For many, it's the music of love, of family, of happiness, and of sadness. And now it's the music that seems to have survived against the odds from the struggles of the pandemic. San Diego's mariachi bands have endured a year of canceled concerts and closed venues, a year of playing too few weddings and too many funerals, a year of searching for work and risking illness to play. Now, as people cautiously begin gathering again, mariachi bands are regrouping and bringing back the music. Joining me is reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania, who profiled the struggles of San Diego's mariachi bands. And Andrea, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You begin your report by reminding us why mariachi music has such an important place for so many in the Latino community. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, it's kind of interesting. In writing this, uh, I was speaking with my editor, and she was like, well, tell me, when you hear mariachi music, you know, what what do you think? And um, honestly, it whenever I hear mariachi music, it reminds me of this moment when I used to live in Mexico, and we were in this plaza, and there was all these mariachi bands. And anytime I hear the music, it just takes me to that memory being with my grandparents there. So a lot of people, um, you know, mariachi music just brings this sense of home, um, the sense of the country that they came from, and it reminds them of, of weddings, of maybe singing along to this music when you're drinking tequila with your friends and um, having, having fun at a quinceanera or family gathering. It's just, um, it's just wholesome music that brings a lot of people together. And the music's popularity has blossomed way outside of the Mexican-American community, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I, I spoke with a professor from uh, USD who he organizes these mariachi conferences here in San Diego, but um, he also takes students around the country and around the world uh, to listen to other mariachi musicians. And he was telling me there was a mariachi group in Japan that they um, met on one of their travels. So it's just it's wonderful to see how far the music has gone. Now, this past year has been very tough for the musicians themselves. Tell us, how did San Diego's mariachi musicians make a living before the pandemic? And what did they face when things began to shut down? You'll have big groups with 12 musicians, but then you'll have smaller ones with maybe six or five. Um, some of the bigger groups, you know, they, they were booking conferences, um, corporate parties, large weddings. They were playing at plazas. So they had these big events where they would thrive off big gatherings, which obviously weren't happening because of COVID. And then you had um, the smaller mariachi bands, which might do family parties, you know, gatherings at home um, among family members, or um, maybe also a wedding or a birthday party. So they were thriving off these gatherings, which obviously we couldn't do because of COVID. So uh, they were not eligible for unemployment insurance because they're, uh, they're contractors, right? Uh, so, so how did they survive? Some, some of the ones I spoke to, you know, uh, they had members who just decided we're going to find different jobs altogether. So um, they started working like Lyft and Uber. Some of them started working at grocery stores. Um, I spoke to a, a mariachi player who, um, a mariachi musician who told me that some of his players were actually from Tijuana, so they couldn't cross over. Um, so he, his band fell apart. So um, he's just been playing by himself and finding other mariachi musicians who want to play with him if he wants to book any events. But yeah, a lot of people had to transition to different kinds of jobs. And unfortunately, a lot of the musicians found a lot of work at funerals. 
Yeah, and that, that's such the interesting story. One of the mariachi bands that I profiled in my story, um, you know, I asked her, like, how, what's been happening? How has this pandemic affected you? And she was like, it's really weird to say, but we've never been busier. And it's because of these funerals. She said that before COVID, maybe they were booked for um, a funeral once a week. And now they're doing much more, maybe three to four funerals a week. And um, although she doesn't always ask the families if it's COVID related, sometimes just kind of speaking to family members, they'll they'll tell her, you know, oh, my mom was in perfect health. So um, so yeah, they, a lot of these mariachi bands have been playing at COVID funerals. And um, it, it's a sad time, but it's actually really interesting. And just to show you the power of mariachi music, because people aren't requesting, you know, there's traditional sad songs. Um, and then there's funeral songs that mariachi bands play, but people are requesting La Cucaracha or uh, El Mariachi Loco or these really cheerful songs that you hear at parties, um, because maybe that's the song that their loved member or their loved one like to listen to. It turned out to be risky to play in closed settings during the pandemic, wasn't it? I mean, some mariachis died. Yeah, um, and I wasn't able to find anyone, you know, who it happened to here in San Diego, but I I did read of um, a couple of mariachi musicians who passed away in L.A. because some of these musicians, maybe they couldn't transition to other work like other musicians could, and they had to keep playing. So, um, you know, families are still having gatherings, and uh, sadly, they're, they're not always um, staying safe. Maybe they're having small gatherings in their home, but the musicians are still exposing themselves to, um, you know, to being in contact with, with other people. So some mariachi players have passed away. Um, I know a couple of famous mariachi musicians have also passed away from COVID. But now things are slowly opening up. Are the mariachis getting more work? Yeah, they are. And like I said, as things are, as things are picking up, right. Um, they're having maybe a quinceanera, but everyone in the family, (laughs) they're wearing face masks. Um, so as people are getting more comfortable, more people are getting vaccinated. Um, you know, restaurants are opening up again. These musicians are playing again. And of course, a lot of them wear face masks when they're performing and it'll just be like the trumpet player who takes the mask off while they're performing. Now, you mentioned there's a big virtual mariachi conference coming up this Friday, hosted by USD. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this conference is wonderful. It uh, brings a lot of professional musicians from all around the world, um, specifically from from Mexico, from Jalisco, uh, and it connects them with young students who maybe want to be professional mariachi musicians when they grow up, and they can learn different kinds of technique. And traditionally, this conference, um, it, it you have to pay to attend the conference at USD, but this year, because it's virtual, it'll be free. So it's on March 12th. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania. Thanks a lot. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.